sophistication of life experience amongst you. Now, just, yeah, I'm, I'm saying that carefully, but it seems like a lot of you have lived a lot of life, which is great, because that would make you familiar with the golden rule. And so the golden rule, if you're not sure what the golden rule is, this is what the golden rule is. The golden rule is do to others as you would have others do to you, okay? See, I told you you're familiar with the golden rule. And the golden rule is just a great baseline for getting on with people. So essentially, if you want to be treated well, then you should treat others well, and if that's kind of working, it just sort of makes common sense, right? And you're probably well aware that actually the golden rule is found in various forms in most of the major world religions. So for example, Buddhism, there's around uh, half a billion people who adhere to Buddhism. Uh, it's around 10% of the world population. So Buddhism, there is one part in their sacred writings which says, hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. In other words, you know, don't hurt others and hopefully you won't get hurt yourself. Or Islam, one of the world's largest religions, 1.6 billion people across the Middle East, Africa and Asia. Not one of you is a believer until he desires for his brother that which he desires for himself in uh, some of the writings of Islam. So you can see the golden rule like has a bit of a thread there. Well, actually, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the founder of the Christian faith, he extended and he enhanced the golden rule in a very radical and a very revolutionary way. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that later. But come back to the golden rule because it is great when there is mutual respect between people. When things are good, the golden rule is good, right? But what happens when things are not good? What happens when we get mistreated or when we get wronged or abused or ripped off or hurt or offended? You know, I think if we're honest, in those situations, we want to change the golden rule to this, do to others as others have done to you. Now, you may be way more mature than me, but I don't know about you, but often I feel that when we get ripped off, we want payback. Or when we are wronged, we want revenge. Or when we are hurt, you know, we want to hurt others. When I was a kid, I had a long walk uh, home from school, and around the corner from where I lived, <coughs> there was this older boy, and he went to another school, and he got home before me, and this kid was just straight up a bully, right? So he would call names, and uh, eventually over time, it kind of escalated. He would throw things over the fence as I walked home from school, and it just got worse and worse, and he was really rude and, and really arrogant, and got to the point where <coughs> I eventually got home one day and I told my dad. I was just so frustrated, so angry with this kid. I just wanted payback to this bully. He was just picking on me really, really bad. And so my dad sat me down and <coughs> my dad had grown up in South Auckland and he had learned to fight on the streets of South Auckland. So he told me a, a story about a time that he dealt with a bully by punching this bully in the nose. And, and then he said, do not do that, okay, do not, do not do that, that is not the way to sort it out. Uh, he said that I should just ignore this bully and just keep walking 
And, and uh, I suppose we agreed that that was good advice. So the next day, I'm walking home from school, and I look up ahead, and I can see this bully, like he is, he is pumped already. He is at his gate with this just scornful smile on his face. And I've got my head down, I'm listening to my dad's advice, I'm just trying to keep on walking, and this bully starts calling out names, and he's throwing stuff over the fence. And I just couldn't take it anymore. So I went right up to the gate, and I grabbed him by the collar, and I drew back my fist, and I looked him in the eye and said, my dad said I could do this. Now, I did not punch him in the nose. I didn't have to, (laughs) because... That bully saw my raised fist, he saw my, me looking at him with my face, you know, jaw real set, his eyes widened up, I could feel his heart start racing, he called out for his mum and he ran off. <laughs> and I never had a problem with that bully ever again. But the human tendency is when we are mistreated, we want payback. We want to even the score, we want to, we want to get even, we want to strike back. And maybe you haven't been threatened by bullies, but chances are you've been in a situation or you've had some circumstances where you've been wronged, where you've been hurt, you've been offended, you've been ripped off. Maybe it's your ex-partner, maybe it's a work colleague, a family member, whoever it is. You have this urge to get even with the person that has mistreated you. We want to do to others as others have done to us. I don't know if you've seen any Hollywood movies, but it seems like payback is a really popular storyline in Hollywood movies. But there is a problem when we take that approach to real life. And the problem is this. The problem with getting even is that it makes you even with someone you don't like. See, when you get even, you act like the person you dislike. And so why would we want to be like someone that we don't like. For the last few weeks here at ABC, we have been exploring the life and times of one of the most celebrated figures of ancient history. The man's name was David. He was a Jewish king who lived about 3,000 years ago, and he was famously described as a man after God's own heart. And so over the last few weeks, we've been unpacking some of David's strengths, some of the weaknesses in his character, and just trying to understand why he was so close to God. And so this morning with you, I just want to drill down into an episode where David almost made a really big mistake. But at the last minute, he was saved by a woman. Now, I think probably half the room here would say that at the very last minute, they have been saved by a woman. I think it's a common occurrence. But anyway, we're going to find this story in the Bible, in the Old Testament, Uh, in a place called 1 Samuel chapter 25. We're just going to skim over it, but I'd really love you to read it for yourself at some stage. So please read along with me. I'm going to put the words up on the screen. But just to give you a bit of context, 1 Samuel chapter 25 is set in a place called the Judean wilderness. If you were going to go there today, you'd find it right on the border between modern-day Egypt and Israel. And that's where it is there, highlighted in the yellow dot. And so David and 600 of his men are hiding out in this wilderness. And this is where we pick up the story. 1 Samuel chapter 25, starting at verse 2. There was a wealthy man from Man who owned property near the town of Carmel. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was sheep shearing time. This man's name was Nabal. 
Nabal is one of the main players in the story, okay? So just kind of get his name embedded in your psyche. Now, you might look at that and think, well, that's not a big deal. He was a farmer. Yeah, he was a farmer, but he was a really wealthy farmer. Like, the first people reading the story would have thought, man, 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, that is big time, okay? This guy's super rich. All right, next part. So this man's name was Nabal, and his wife, Abigail, <clears throat> was a sensible and beautiful woman. But Nabal was crude and mean in all his dealings. All right, so there's a, a, a set up a bit of a contrast here. Abigail sounds like a pretty great lady. Nabal, not such a nice guy, okay? He's cheap, he's nasty. In fact, we find out later that his name means fool. And he certainly revealed his name through his character. All right, so when David heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep, he sent 10 of his young men to Carmel with this message for Nabal. Peace and prosperity to you, your family and everything you own. I'm told that it is sheep shearing time. While your shepherds stayed among us near Kamal, we never harmed them and nothing was ever stolen from them. So, would you be kind to us since we have come at a time of celebration? Please share any provisions you might have on hand with us and with your friend David. David's young men gave this message to Nabal in David's name and they waited for a reply. Now, just to set the scene here, it's sheep shearing time. I can tell for some of you that's not a big deal. But if you're a farmer or if you're a shearer, it's a big deal. And it still is today. Particularly, it was important in ancient times because sheep shearing time was pretty much the payday for the farmers. This was when the owner found out just how wealthy they really were. They could check the quality of the wool and they could see what sort of price they would get for it at market. And so it was often a really festive time. You know, there was a lot of sort of party to celebrate, particularly if it was a good yield. And the owner was typically very generous and very gracious because it was, it was a good time for them. So David sends off his men to Nabal and he says, hey, look, congratulations. Things, things are going well for you. You're, you're likely to make a lot of money in this whole uh, sharing incident. So just kind of want to point out to you, are you aware that... Some of the reason for your profit is because my men and I protected your sheep and your shepherds when they were out in the wilderness. Did you know that, Nabal? This is really, really important. We didn't steal any of your sheep, and we certainly brought no harm to your men. So basically, David is essentially saying, look, we were good to you. Would you be good to us? To us? And so he asks Nabal if he's willing to share, you know, food, supplies, any provisions that'll be helpful. And then his men are waiting for the reply. This is what Nabal says in response. Who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered to the young men. Who does this son of Jesse think he is? There are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shearers and give it to a band of outlaws who come from who knows where. Now, we know Nabal's not a particularly nice guy, but you can tell from his response, he's sort of getting up in David's grip because he knew who David was. A few years earlier, David had killed Goliath and he became a national hero. People sung songs about him. Nabal knew who David was. 
And so Nabal is mockingly critical of his help. He's basically saying, look, I didn't ask for your protection, David, and I don't owe you anything. But what we've got to appreciate in the ancient Near East culture was that hospitality was a really big deal. And it was customary to accommodate and to feed travelers. And so with his wealth, Nabal could have easily afforded this. He could have easily accommodated David's request. Because David wasn't actually asking for a handout. I mean, his men had worked. They had protected Nabal's people and his property. So actually, in a sense, Nabal did owe David something. Anyway, this is what happens next. So David's young men returned and told him what Nabal had said. Get your swords, was David's reply as he strapped on his own. Then 400 men started off with David. Like if this was a movie, if this was a movie was being made of this, this would when the music would change, right? It would just be ominous and there would be that tension starting to build. David strapping on his sword. He's telling 400 of his men to get their swords on. This is where it's really starting to ramp up. David and his men are ready for payback. And actually, if we just skip a couple of lines ahead, you can kind of get a glimpse of what David's thinking in this. David said, We protected his, that's Nabal's flocks, in the wilderness, and nothing he owned was lost or stolen. But he has repaid me evil for good. Now, I don't know about you, maybe you know how David felt in that moment. Maybe you've helped someone, maybe you've sacrificed some time or some effort, maybe you've given some money, and you've just been rebuffed. You know, your efforts have been ignored, your requests have been rejected, you've been repaid evil for good. And just like David, you've had that urge to get even, to get payback. Well, thankfully, there's some other people in the story. And so while David is strapping on a sword, getting ready for payback, one of Nabal's servants runs to Nabal's wife. Remember that lady, Abigail, we met at the beginning. Now, can you remember how she was described in verse 2? She was a sensible and beautiful woman. And so the servant tells Abigail what's happened. He says, look, David's men protected our sheep and our shepherds in the wilderness. David sent some messages, messengers asking for provisions. Your husband, Nabal, he's refused to help. And so David is going to return and settle the score. I love this response. This is what Abigail does. Abigail wasted no time. She quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread, two wineskins full of wine, five sheep that had been slaughtered, nearly a bushel, that's 30 litres of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 fig cakes. Just like that. Whipped it all up. She packed them on donkeys and said to her servants, go on ahead, I will follow you shortly. So I don't know how she does it, but you know, maybe it's just an amazing talent of woman. She just grabs this huge amount of food, and then all this bread, all this wine, all this meat, all this grain, all this fruit, and she packs them up, and she, she heads off to meet David. And now you've got to remember that David is on his way with 400 ruthless soldiers. They're heading to Nabal's place for payback because of his arrogance. And it's highly likely that David and his men are going to wipe out the family, possibly even take out the whole village. There is going to be a lot of innocent blood shed on this day. 
But Abigail is wanting to intercept David, and this is what she says. I'm just kind of condense her speech into just a couple of, couple of bits. She says, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low to, before him. She fell at his feet and said, I accept all blame in this matter, my Lord. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Please don't pay any attention to him. He is a fool. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands, let all your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. Even when you are chased by those who seek to kill you, your life is safe in the care of the Lord your God, secure in his treasure pouch. When the Lord has done all he has promised and made you leader of Israel, don't let this be a blemish on your record. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. You know, that's powerful, right? That is wisdom personified. She acknowledges that her husband is just an ignorant fool, and she recognizes that, that God has his hand on David's life. I want you to just zoom in on that line there where she says, your life is safe in the care of the Lord your God, secure in his treasure pouch. What she's referring to is an ancient wallet or a purse. And in those times, if people had something of value, usually money, they would take a piece of fabric or a piece of leather, <clears throat> they would wrap it up, wrap some cord around it, and then they would tuck it into their belt to make it nice and secure. And that's the imagery that Abigail is drawing on. She's reminding David that he's on the run, and people are trying to steal his life. But God has wrapped him up. God has tucked him into his belt. He is safe and secure in God's wallet. It's a really cool picture. Anyway, Abigail also appeals to David's sensibility, and she presents a different path that he could take. Look back there at verse 20, uh, 30, 31. She says, um, <clears throat> don't let this be a blemish on your record. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and violence. Abigail realized that David was at a critical moment. What he chose to do in the next few minutes would have long-term consequences. And essentially, Abigail says to David, look, you don't have to settle the score. You don't have to get even, but what you choose to do now will influence the rest of your story. And so David is just blown away by this woman. He says this, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. Thank God for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. Then David told her, return home in peace. I've heard what you said. We will not kill your husband. Now, if you thought Abigail was smart in the way that she diffused that whole situation, which she was, you need to understand what, what happened next. So she gets home, and she finds Nabal is having this huge party, and he is drunk as a skunk. So she waits until the next day, until he's sobered up, and she tells him that she's gone to meet David, and that she's basically saved Nabal's life. Nabal is so shocked that he has a medical event, maybe a stroke or a, or a heart attack or something, and then 10 days later, he dies. 
David hears about it, so he sends a message, asks Abigail to become his wife. She gets on her donkey, she heads off, she marries David, and they live happily ever after. I don't know about the donkey. Well, the donkey bit's definitely true. The happily ever after bit I added in. Um, I should give you some context. Abigail becomes one of David's wives. He had at least eight. And I don't know about you, but I imagine it would be hard to be happily ever after if you were just one of a number of wives. But anyway, that's for them to sort out. That's not what we're talking about. The summary of the story is this. There were three characters, and they had three very different responses. So Nabal returned evil for good. David protected his property, and Nabal did not, did not acknowledge his support. David was looking to return evil for evil. And that was very common in ancient times. In fact, I would argue that it's still common today. But Abigail did something radically different. Abigail essentially returned good for evil. And what's remarkable about her response is that it's so countercultural. Returning good for evil was certainly not the norm 3,000 years ago. So at the time, the people of Israel had made an agreement with God uh, called the Old Covenant. And under the Old Covenant, God had given them guidelines for how uh, those people should live and interact with each other. And actually, the Old Covenant made allowance for payback, for proportional payback. So you might have heard of the phrase, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. That came out of um, this old covenant. It was, the principle was about getting even, about settling the score, but it was also to act as a deterrent to stop any escalation. But what Abigail did was ahead of her time. And we know that because a thousand years later, Jesus bursts onto the scene and he initiates a new covenant and he turns everything upside down. In fact, in one of his most famous statements, Jesus said this, you have heard the law that says, love your enemy and hurt your neighbor. Ah, sorry, love your neighbor and hurt, hate your enemy. Sorry. Just getting ahead of my notes, that's all. Right, so let's just clarify that. Love your neighbor and hurt your enemy is what Jesus said initially. And Jesus is like just capturing what so many civilizations and cultures had gone before that payback was important, that you should return evil for evil, you should get even, you should settle the score, but Jesus turns all of that upside down, and he says this, but I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, they're powerful words. I guess the question is, did Jesus back it up? Did he, did he walk the talk? Because his teachings challenged the establishment, particularly the religious leaders, and eventually Jesus was arrested, he was falsely accused, he was beaten, and then he was crucified like a common criminal, stripped naked and hung on a cross. But through all of that, he practiced what he preached. Jesus loved his enemies. He prayed for those who persecuted him. And one of his close friends was a guy called Peter, and Peter saw all this. He saw Jesus returning good for evil, and it had a transformative effect on Peter. So before he met Jesus, Peter was hot-headed. 
He was reckless. In fact, Peter was quite happy to return evil for evil. In fact, on one occasion when Jesus was arrested, Peter drew a sword and sliced off a man's ear. But 30 years later, after seeing Jesus return good for evil, Peter writes to encourage the first Christians to live the same way that Jesus lived. This is what he wrote. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will bless you for it. Now, that's a radical idea. Where did Peter get that idea from? He got it from Jesus. Peter saw Jesus mistreated. He saw him wrong. He saw him abused. He saw him ripped off. But he never saw Jesus repay evil for evil. Jesus turned the system upside down. Jesus only ever returned good for evil. And because he refused to get even, because he refused to settle the score, because he refused to respond in kind to the people who mistreated him, Jesus paid them back with a blessing. And that's actually the lifestyle that God calls every Christian to. When you think about it, it's challenging, uncomfortable. Returning good for evil is really, really hard work. It's hard because it's so countercultural. It's totally different to how our society works. But when you refuse to get even, when you refuse to settle the score, I would argue that is potentially the most Christ-like thing you could do. So I just want to finish and give you three questions to think about. Two questions are for everybody, and the last one is specifically if you um, count yourself as a Christian. Here's the questions. First question is this. Do you want to be even with someone you don't like? Because getting even is easy. It's easy to get even. It's easy to settle the score. It's easy to go and get payback. <clears throat> but by doing that, you put yourself in the same place as someone that you do not like. And I think if we're honest, that's quite an unsatisfying place to be. Second question is this. What story are you writing? David's on his way to get payback on Nabal, and he's stopped in his tracks by a wise and a courageous woman. And Abigail points out that he is writing his future, and his actions now are going to have some long-term consequences. And I think what we need to realize is that getting even makes for a weak story. Because everybody does it. It's the, it's the dominant story in our culture. But if we choose to return good for evil, we're actually writing a different story. We're writing a more powerful, a more inspiring story, which ultimately will set us apart and will also set us free. And the third question, for I mean, everyone can answer this, but if you're a Christian, you have no option but to answer this third question. The question is this. What would it look like to return good for evil? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you are trying your best to live and love like Jesus, then returning good for evil is non-negotiable. So think about 
your ex-partner or your former employee or, or your boss or your son or your daughter or your parents or that neighbor or a teacher or a colleague or a client, think about that email, that phone call, that social media post. What would it look like to return good for evil in that situation? Or to use Peter's words, to pay them back with a blessing, to offer mercy, to give them grace. Because I think as a Christian, this is one of our best opportunities to be like Jesus. In those moments when we return good for evil, our story intersects with the greatest story. Because the greatest story ever told was that God returned good for evil. God gave Jesus, his one and only son, who's described as being full of grace and truth for the sins of the world. Jesus turned the golden rule upside down, and his sacrifice made it the greatest golden rule. Do for others what they don't deserve for you to do. Jesus gave his life so that we might live.